All right, let's go before the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this time that you've granted us to go into your word, to learn about important things of salvation. We pray for faithfulness and clarity of understanding for myself and also for all who are in the hearing of the message. May you grant your people eyes to see and ears to hear. In the light of Christ, may the Holy Spirit show us the things of Christ. Honor you glorify you in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. Good morning again. This morning we're going to be in Romans 6, verses 1 to 11. Romans 6, verses 1 to 11. And Apostle Paul records and says, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who die to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. For he who has died has been freed from sin. Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And that's the word of the Lord. We have a number of titles. Died with Christ is title number one. And die to sin once for all is title number two. And the second title is verse 11. <laughs> verse 11, reckon yourself dead to sin but alive to God. Reckon yourself or yourselves dead to sin but alive to God. The apostle begins, opens the chapter by a question, what shall we say then? But why ask the question? Paul says, what shall we conclude from all that has been said hitherto about salvation? Right from 
chapter 1 to chapter 5. Paul has said, the Jew, the moralist, and the Gentile are all under sin. There's no difference among them. Thus, none is righteous. And that was an offense and very deflating to the Jew who thought they were keeping the law and the moralists who thought they were righteous in the deception of their self-righteousness and the Gentile for being a citizen of the Romans' one country. So from Romans 3, verse 21, to Romans 5, verse 21, Paul enters or has entered into the discussion of how such as have been described are declared righteous before God. In other words, Paul gives the God solution to all the problems that have been listed as afflicting mankind. And it surely is not by the works of the law, but through the person of Christ Jesus that a sinner is made accepted before God. But once Jesus is introduced into the equation of salvation, suddenly people find themselves with nothing to do, and that is not always good news to everyone. In and by Christ, God introduced what he calls the righteousness of God. The righteousness which is by the faith or faithfulness of Christ. The righteousness which is testified of by the law and the prophets. That is the whole of the Old Testament. And that righteousness which is freely imputed to as many as should be saved. And this righteousness is apart from faith. It is apart from the law, I meant to say. It's apart from the law. And this is the righteousness that cannot be earned in any way. It is a righteousness that is given to those who do not work. Lazy boy righteousness, lazy boy gospel. But these who believe in the God who justifies the ungodly through Christ Jesus. And if anyone works in any way to cause this righteousness to come to them, 
then it is reckoned as debt owed by God. As a paycheck that God has to pay. And connected with that is that one will also have something to boast about before God and say, look at me, how good and smart and pretty I am or have been to cause or help in my own salvation. And God will not have anyone to come and boss about anything which is not the cross of Christ Jesus. If there are two grounds of boasting, they're going to be the cross of Christ or boast in your weaknesses, as Paul said. If he were to boast, he would rather glory in his own weaknesses or glory in Christ. Those are the only two grounds of boasting that are acceptable to God. So God's solution to man's problems removes all grounds of human boasting. But faith is not the condition for the giving of this righteousness, at least the faith of the sinner. And this is still new to a lot of people because they have not been instructed correctly. The pieces of the gospel have not been connected for them correctly. Sinners are sinners because naturally they do not have faith. They're faithless. Thus, God could not justify them based on something that they naturally possess. Faith then, as a gift from God, faith is a gift from God, is not for causing the imputation and possession of this righteousness, but is the evidence of possession of the righteousness. Faith evidences possession of God's righteousness it does not cause possession. Very important distinction. Remember the Hebrews' definition of faith from Hebrews 11 verse 1. This is what the Holy Spirit says. Hebrews 11 verse 1. The writer says, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for. The evidence of things not seen. See that faith has two components. Substance of things hoped for. That's number one, substance. There's a substance to faith. Secondly, it is the evidence of things not seen 
of invisible spiritual truths, realities, Christ and his salvation. The substance of faith is Christ and the evidence of things invisible, who is invisible, is Christ. The righteousness is also invisible because we still experience our life as sinners and yet God says we possess the righteousness. So it is invisible to us. So faith is not causative but evidences possession of spiritual realities of salvation in the person of Christ Jesus. And unfortunately, many in the Reformed and even some in the Sovereign Grace camps who present faith as if or as though it is causative of salvation. And they will say, church history, this and that. John Calvin, Zwingli, this and that. Augustine, and the list of their heroes seems to be endless. Let it be said that these men were not the arbiters of God's truth. They were not Jesus. Thus we have every right to disagree with them where we need to disagree with them. The truth is not in church history. You're going to have to process correctly what I just said. The truth is not in church history. The truth is in God. The truth is in Christ. And Christ is the truth. The truth is in the Holy Spirit, the spirit of truth and supplication. And the truth is in the scriptures. What saith the Lord? And that brackets the matter of truth. Is God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in the scriptures? That's the foundation of the truth. So if someone is going to argue with me, they really have to know what they're talking about. Christ is the truth. I have every right to disagree with the tradition. And you have every right to disagree with what I'm saying. But what do the scriptures actually declare about the matter. The matter of tradition and the truth. The Lord 
Jesus rebuked the Jews for their long-held traditions that were contrary to the truth. In Mark 7, verse 13, he says, you make the word of God of no effect. The word of God is the truth. But you make it of no effect through your tradition, which you have handed down. Tradition handed down from generation to generation and being taken for God's truth. And then the Lord said, and many such things you do. Many such doctrines have been handed down in the name of church history that pass for the truth of God but are contrary to the word of God. And that is say, just because something has been around for a long time does not make it the truth of God. And of course, this is a huge offense to those who have invested their studies in the dead guys, but are still ignorant of the gospel. Those who think they know Jesus because they have Calvin's Institutes of Christian Religion. They think they know the truth. They think they know Christ because they know Hebrew, because they know Greek. Well, if you go to Greece, the majority of them don't know anything about Jesus. They do know they do not know the Jesus of the scriptures. The Jews do not know the Jesus of the scriptures. And yet they are fluent and native speakers of this language. So you tell them this truth and they say, but who are you to go against the church fathers? Who are you to go against the confessions of faith the Westminster and the London Baptist Confession of Faith. I did not come to Christ. I did not come to the knowledge of salvation through any of these confessions. I came to Christ by God's doing alone. It's God who brought me to Christ. And then, of course, when you go against the traditions of men, they will warn everyone about you, thinking that they are doing God a service. Did you hear this guy? Did you hear the kind of blasphemies that he's uttering? He can't go against the Westminster Confession of Faith. <laughs> but we are not going, we are not bringing new doctrine contrary to people's ignorance. This has always been God's doctrine, which men of religion have mutilated because God had not given them the understanding. The standard of understanding is not me or any other person on two legs it is Christ. So to be justified by faith is Bible doctrine. 
and it means to be justified by the blood of Christ. You are not justified by your believing. Otherwise, Christ died in vain. The blood is what justifies. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. In what? In judgment. And that to say, justification. Faith is not an additional transaction in the justification equation. Faith is not an additional transaction. Justification is not prorated as if it were some vacation days or a paycheck. It was a one-time event that happened when the surety of the elect Christ Jesus made satisfaction by way of payment of the sins of his people on the cross. He justified his people when he died. So the gospel of God speaks of a free crediting of righteousness to these who were the ungodly. Sinners without strength and were enemies with God and says they have now been reconciled, redeemed and justified in that one act of obedience on the cross. And so the redeemed have a standing with God and before God. They are not the fallen anymore in respect of their relation to God. They have a standing. They have a claim to all blessing in Christ. A claim and a title. And they have privileged access to God through the grace that has been granted them in Christ. But this gospel has many dimensions to its offense. It discounts one's works. But even more, it says, all humanity was made sinners by the one act of another. And in this one man, Adam, we found ourselves in sin and its consequences. The corruption, death and condemnation. And that is offensive because how can such a seemingly minor infraction, minor offense, bring such a disaster to all of humanity? And men of high reason 
and natural light would raise objections. Even the very religious people would raise objections and say that cannot be. God should have granted everyone a chance to be righteous. <laughs> that is unfair and a corrupt way of dealing with things, they would argue. They would even venture to say, I do not believe in such an unjust God. But it is because they have not had the light of Christ shone to their understanding. They are natural men and women, even though they may be of higher learning and social status. And those things, unfortunately, mean nothing to God. He still regards them as maggots swimming on top of other maggots and regards them as fools and less than nothing. This is Bible testimony. And that is the side A of the offense with respect to sin, that the sin of the one man Adam was imputed to all who did not sin in the likeness of him. And Paul comes and says, wait a minute, That's not the end of the story. There is also the side B. And the side B is justification. It is eternal life. It is reconciliation. It is peace with God without your contribution either. You did not cause your sin and condemnation. And guess what? You also did not cause your righteousness, your life with God. So side A brings a sad conversation, but when it is properly put in the proper context of the gospel, it was not as disastrous as many have been made to believe. It was necessary for side B to be what it is. For Christ to be known the way that we know him, it was necessary that sin be there. Side B cannot happen without side A. The record will not play. So Adam, representing side A, was necessitated by Christ Jesus, side B. And Christ was necessitated by God's glory, not by sin. Sin was just an instrument to something bigger. So it is Christ who drove Adam, not the other way around. Things are what they are because of Christ. Christ is the driver of everything. In other words, Jesus did not appear 
is a fire marshal from heaven because there are no fire trucks in heaven. He came to put out a fire that was always purposed by God. It was always in God's eternal purpose that they should be seen for the glory of the Son. And without sin, we would have no title to God's righteousness and no title to eternal life. Because those things cannot be and Adam could not end for us what God determined to give by grace. You cannot end that which God determined to freely give. You cannot buy that which God determined to give to you for free. It cannot be bought. It cannot be end. And sin was necessary because God's riches of grace and mercy should be praised. That is what pleased him to do. And so by the one act of obedience, the obedience of Christ, the blood of the cross, the many, the elect were constituted were declared to be righteous by that one act, by that death of the cross. That was the obedience, that was God's declaration of the righteousness, the justification of all the elect. There's no righteousness to talk about apart from Mount Calvary, apart from the cross. And in that one act of obedience by Christ, all the elect were forgiven. Not just one offense, but many offenses, which means all their transgressions were forgiven in that one transaction. Happened on Mount Calvary. Justification on Mount Calvary. You cannot talk gospel without justification on Mount Calvary. It's impossible. It's impossible to talk gospel and not talk justification on Mount Calvary. It cannot happen. There's no way. There's no way. God will not accept that. So why give the law to sinners who were already condemned. Romans 4.15, Paul tells us, because the law brings about wrath. For where there's no law, there's no transgression. The law, the moral law is in view. The Ten Commandments brings about wrath. God's wrath. And you will not hear that from the many law preachers. But how does 
That happened because the moral law demands perfection, not your best effort. And a single miss is a breaking of not just that one commandment, but the whole law. Because it comes as a unit. Once you break one, you've broken everything. And we have to keep hammering this truth until donkeys and horses begin to grow horns. Until you see donkeys with horns, then maybe God has done some work to get people to understand. Because men and women of religion are hard of hearing, hard of hearing the truth. So Adam was not under God's wrath until he broke the commandment that was given him because where they is no law, there's no transgression. Where there is no law, where there's no commandment that forbids you from doing something, if you do it, you did not transgress because there was nothing there that said you should not do it. Thus the commandment to not eat was given to bring transgression to Adam. And God knew exactly what was going to happen. Not because of prophecy. Not because he looked into the telescope of time and saw that Adam was going to eat. But because that is what he purposed to happen. That's what he wanted to happen. So the law brings God's wrath It brings condemnation. And there's no way to spin it and say, well, that's how it's spun by a lot of these spin doctors of the law. They say, oh, the law is about God's character. So it is kosher for us. No. (laughs) You don't find that argument given in the Bible with respect to the law. The Bible says there's no hope in the law for a sinner. There's no hope for a sinner in the law, if you want to say it differently. A sinner like you and me only have hope in grace. Ask anyone who is in prison, because you have to know where you were. For you to appreciate what is being said, you have to know where you were. To the prison person, for the inmate who is on death row, they do not want the law. No matter how good it is, they cannot be helped by the law. The death row inmate 
cannot be helped by the law. The only thing that can reverse the cause for them, the cause for one who is condemned and is in the yellow jumpsuit, the one thing that can reverse their judgment is grace. And grace alone. And that's God's message. Grace alone. Because you have to know where you were. You were not free apart from Christ. You were on death row. And this is not what, and this is not being said. We were not free people. We were on death row. The law cannot help one who's guilty of murder. Grace alone is the helper of those who are condemned to die. Paul said, Romans 5.20. Moreover, the law ended that the offense might abound. But where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. Grace did much more abound. The law came alongside the sin of Adam that the offense may abound, the offense may increase in all who are born in and after Adam. And that to say the law increases sin. The more laws are passed, the more people go to jail. It is that simple. But Paul said, there was something happening on the side B of the record. Where sin increased, on the A side, grace did much more abound on the B side. So that grace was always overflowing over the sin, always on top of sin. So this is where the redeemed find themselves. They have no hope in the law. The law is not their friend in this respect because it was not the way of their blessing, the inheritance of salvation was not of law, but of promise. And that means of grace, of faith, freely given. And some Maybe many Reformed preachers are also fond of saying there was grace in the law. It's a very popular line among Reformed people. There was grace in the law. There's not a single verse that says that. And this they say, to try and keep Moses employed, To deny Moses his well-deserved rest, retirement. And say differently, to keep the bride of Christ married to another husband. And thus making Jesus an adulterer and the church an adulteress. 
they will not let go of the law. They are stuck because of the traditions. They cannot go against the traditions of the Westminster Confession of Faith. They are stuck. They claim with one side of their mouth that we are complete in Christ and yet run back to Moses, to Mount Sinai for sanctification and call it the third use of the law. It is just theological gimmicks because they don't know what to do with the law because they don't understand Christ. Moses is not just retired. He is dead. (laughs) Moses is dead. Let them who want to mourn for him keep mourning. But at some point, the scriptures say in Deuteronomy 34.8, And the children of Israel wept for Moses in the plains of Moab 30 days. So the days of weeping and mourning for Moses ended. God had killed Moses on Mount Nebo and said he would not enter the promised land with the children of Israel. He was not the one to bring the children of Israel into the promised land. And when Moses is killed, which signals the end of the law, there will always be those who weep for him and cannot be comforted even for 30 days, those who do not understand God's way. And brother and sister, I pray God will bring to an end the days of your mourning for Moses, mourning for the law, mourning for the moral law, because mourning for Moses means the veil of Moses has not yet been taken off from the people's hearts so that they may behold of Christ And that's Paul's teaching in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, that those who continue to labor under the ministry of death and condemnation, the letter that kills those who labor under that ministry still have a veil that covers their hearts so that they may not behold the truth as it is in Christ. So it is not because these lawmongers love God. No, it is because God has not opened their minds to the truth. But this is some wonderful news to anyone who knows their sinner. One who knows they have no hope in themselves. Nowhere to run, especially from God because of sin. This is wonderful news 
of having title to eternal blessings apart from your own obedience. The good news of being justified from all your sins. The good news that the law cannot bless them because it was never given to do that. And now, because of Christ, the same law is not able to condemn them. The law cannot condemn one who is in Christ. So anyone who has been hearing all these arguments put forward by Apostle Paul would naturally be thinking, well, dude, this is some great news. And it is. <laughs> Wonderful news. What sin shall we do now that God's grace may be multiplied towards us? And that will be the natural fleshly reaction to God's message. And Paul anticipated and countered the argument and said, Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? And that means everything that I said was introduction. <laughs> Shall we sin? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? We have a wonderful, wonderful message. If the Lord will grant me ability to keep talking and for you to keep hearing. As I remarked in the previous message, many professing Christians, preachers, run to this verse without building the context and they end up missing very important gospel points, gospel nuggets. They use the verse to say, see, Christians do not sin anymore. And if you are still sinning, then you ought to check yourself. You are not saved. If a Christian is caught up in sin, especially a more public figure, they will run to this verse, to verse one of Romans 1, of Romans 6. And they'll say, I'm not sure if this guy was even saved. And by that statement, they reveal their own ignorance of the gospel. They do. How is a sinner saved by God? A sinner is saved by the grace that is in Christ Jesus and freely so. But Paul was not saying believers do not sin anymore. Sin is still natural to them in many ways. Remember, the poor of Romans 7. In Romans 7, 
was written after Romans 6. Let's hear Romans 7, verse 18 to Romans 7, verse 18 to 20. Paul says, For I know. No, people don't. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, very good things dwell. Is that what the text says? No. For I know that in me that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me. To will to do what? To stop the sinning. <laughs> to will to stop the sin. But how to perform what is good, I do not find. How to perform that which is good, I do not find. For the good that I will to do, I do not do. But Paul, you just told us to stop sinning. For the good that I will to do, I do not do. But the evil I will not to do, that I do. <laughs> I do the very opposite. Now, if I do what I will not, now if I do what I will not to do, it is no longer I will do it. But sin that dwells in me, his point is, there's indwelling sin in every person, even the redeemed, that causes them to be sinners. And this is the Paul that said, shall we sin the more that grace may abound? He was saying, you're already a sinner. Don't take the grace of God to add as motivation to your already to your sins that you're already doing. You, you already have enough sin going on. You don't need to add more because of grace. But there's been introduced to the believers in Paul's hearing and even ourselves an unbelievable message. An incredible message. And people need help to be guided as to the proper handling of it. It is not a message that has come to encourage people to sin the more because it surely does sound like it. The gospel cannot provide more motivation to sin the more. The gospel cannot and does not give fuel to more sin. And Paul now explains and says, verse 2, certainly not to 
his earlier question, shall we sin the more that grace may increase? He says, certainly not. God forbid. May it never be. How shall we who die to sin live any longer in it? So the redeemed are said to be those who died to sin, that is past tense. Let us explain some things for perspective. To die to something means to be separated from that something. And one cannot live or continue to live in a realm or space or place or domain that they died to. Otherwise, the language of death loses its meaning. And the Holy Spirit says the redeemed died to sin, and thus in this respect they do not live in it. As I said, one does not continue to live in a place that they died to. They are dead to it. Everyone who died has died to their existence to this world. But being dead to the existence in the world does not mean they do not continue to exist, continue living in some other place. In other words, death is not extinction. It is a separation. It is a change of address. It is a change of zip codes. So the redeemed do not live in the space they used to occupy with sin in respect of their legal understanding in respect of their legal standing in Adam. And that space was with and in Adam. And it is not speaking to a particular sin that one used to do. As many misconstrue the theological argument of Paul. Do you understand that? Dying to sin in the gospel sense is not speaking to you stopping some particular sin. It's speaking to a particular event of you being translated from Adam and everything that he represented to being in Christ And those are different addresses. Those are different zip codes, different locations. But how did that death, how did that separation happen? How did that happen? 
Verse 3, or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? And that tells you the level of the discussion that it is not speaking to specific things that you and I do or did. So all who were immersed, that is baptized into Christ, were baptized into his death. Baptism then has a reference, not to dipping in water, but the death of Christ. The baptism of Christ on the cross. He even called it himself a baptism in Luke 12, verse 50. And we, in the experience of things, are baptized by him in time through the Holy Spirit. And then we testify of the reality of it through water baptism. But water baptism itself is not what unites us with Christ. Water baptism does not cause regeneration and neither does preaching the gospel. The power of the gospel is not in my preaching of it, no matter how well I may preach it. The power of the gospel is in the person of Christ, number one. It is in the blood of Christ that was shed on the cross. That is the proper reference of the power of the gospel. It is not in words spoken by men. The power of the gospel is not speaking to regeneration even. It's talking about the death of Christ and the redemption that he accomplished by that death. That's the power. It redeemed us from the slavery of sin. It is the power of the blood of the Lamb that redeemed Israel from their slavery in Egypt. That's the connection. That's the power. It was not in Moses preaching it to the children of Israel. So regeneration which is the giving of spiritual life to a once dead sinner is done by God alone. Spiritual life belongs to God alone. Only God makes a life. Only God quickens anything that's dead. So cause and effect are very important. Water baptism is an external testimony of the spiritual reality. Water does not cause spiritual realities. Faith is the true testimony of the spiritual reality. 
but it still looks to a baptism that happened outside of ourselves, the baptism of the cross. So all who believe were baptized into his death. They were united. They were put into the death of Christ. And that implies union with Christ. Christ Jesus could not have died if we were not united to him. Because our sins could not have been imputed without union. You cannot have representation without union. So election provided the legal basis of our union and imputation of sin to Christ and also the righteousness. The elect were united to Christ from before the foundation of the world through union, united on the cross, United in the death of Christ. United in the resurrection. United by the Holy Spirit to Christ through faith. And united in glorification. See what baptism Paul had in mind. Verse 4 of Romans 6. Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death. If we died with him, then it means we would be buried with him. And if we were buried with him, then it would imply that we would also be raised with him because we are now inseparable. And if Christ is seated, we are also seated in the heavenly places with and in Christ. In business, they say, follow the money. Follow the money. In salvation, they follow Christ. Follow where God is moving with Jesus. That's where your story is. Don't go to Adam. Don't go to Moses. There's nothing for you there. Follow Christ. Follow Christ. On the cross, in the grave, resurrection, he is seated. And God unites us to Christ at every stage of those things. That is Christ, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so, we also should walk in newness of life. So our union with Christ in death, burial and resurrection was to the end that we should walk in newness of life. Don't assume you know these things quickly. You see, newness of life, and then we begin to interpret it in the manner that is not being said. This is not understood by many people. 
It is very similar to this verse here in Ephesians 1, 3 to 4. Let's go to Ephesians 1, 3 and 4. This is what Paul said. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. What was the purpose of that election? That we should be holy and without blame before him. In many preachers and peoples who run to verse 4, the second part of it, and say believers should be holy and without blame by their own obedience to God. They do not get what Paul was saying. Paul was not saying we are made holy by and without blame by what we do. He was explaining the decree of God of election, the purpose of it. It was such that the decree of election was such that those who are chosen in Christ would be holy and without blame before God because of Christ and in Christ. So that is not a command <laughs> to be holy. It is not a command to be holy. It is telling us about what God purposed to make us and to call us in Christ Jesus, holy and without blame. But back to Romans 6 verse 4, even so we also should walk in newness of life. There is a layered understanding that is driven by the context here. The newness of life given the context of the whole conversation is our being severed from the old existence of Adam. When a child is born, they cut off the umbilical cord that ties the child to the mother to speak of separation from the mother. I did cut all the four umbilical cords. Six. I don't even know how many kids I have now. There are six of them. When we were born in Christ by his death, the umbilical cord to Adam was the first thing to be cut off. The old existence was being under the power of sin, the power of death and condemnation. That's what that umbilical cord was speaking to. And Christ Jesus was introduced to bring to an end this existence for all the elect by his death. So the newness of life 
is our justified and reconciled state to God. It is not saying wear long dresses as evidence of the new life and do not shave your beard. And I do not object to that, but that's not the point. That's a totally different life, a fresh life as against the old life of Adam. That's the comparison. Adam and his power have been broken in the legal way and the spiritual ramifications that he brought on the redeemed that has been broken. So the newness is in you being in Christ. Verse 6, sorry, verse 5, Romans 6. For if, for since we have been united together in the likeness of his death, see that union thing that I talked about. Certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. Our union with Christ in his death guarantees our resurrection in his likeness in that we shall be raised in power, glorified, and with sinless bodies. New materials of construction that are not Adamic in nature. And that means or implies that the resurrection has not yet happened. The full preterists would say, Jesus is not coming back. And the world shall continue as is forever. That is not faithful teaching. The resurrection of the body is still future. It is part of the gospel transaction and package. And as long as doctors and nurses are still employed and pharmacies are open, the resurrection has not yet happened. Because the resurrection is the glorification of the bodies of the redeemed that were sown in corruption and now being raised in power. Verse 6. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. Three things mentioned in this verse. Number one, our old man was crucified with him. Number two, the body of sin done away with. Number three, no longer slaves of sin. What does that all mean? First point, our old man was crucified with Christ. What or who was the old man who was crucified with Christ? Remember, Paul has just finished a lengthy discussion 
on union and representation in Adam and Christ from Romans chapter 5. So the old man who was crucified was Adam. But Adam was not there on the cross. He died in Genesis. So how did he make it to the cross? (laughs) He was there by the things that he brought to us through imputation, to us an imputation to Christ. He was there because of sin, death, and condemnation. Because these things that were founded in the DNA of Adam were also passed to us. They were passed on to us. So sin had to be destroyed from its fountain. And Jesus was not on the cross to trim some branches of sin off the tree. He was there to remove the whole tree of sin. Dig it right from the ground. That's Adam and what we had in him is the old man that was crucified. And crucified means was hung as to be killed. And that takes us to the next point, that the body of sin may be done away with. That statement explains more the preceding line in that verse. The body of sin was the body of the sins of all the elect. And that is figurative language, it seems to me. Sin is not something that has a physical body. It acts through the physical body, but itself is a spiritual reality. So the body of sin is figurative language that is necessitated by the language of crucifixion. Make that connection. You cannot crucify something that does not have a body. But the end of it was so that this body of sin would be done away with And that means we'll be disabled, we'll be killed, we'll be made useless, we'll be made powerless. For that which is crucified is rendered powerless. And if the body of sin was crucified, the next logical point or result is that we are no longer slaves of that which was crucified, of that which used to condemn you. And that implies that sin was a slave master that ruled, that had dominion, it had power, and it gave instructions as the ruler, and it also 
condemned. The wages of sin is death. The wages, the payout of sin is death. That's what sin gave as the ruler. And the only way to get rid of its power was by the crucifixion of Christ. But what was the power of sin? Because many preachers and people who say, believers do not sin anymore. I'm, go- I'm having to say this over and over because they ran to Romans 6 for this. I believe this discussion at this point is higher than what people do or stopped doing. Hear this from Paul, from verse, 1 Corinthians 15, 56. Paul says, the sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. Wasps, bees, scorpions, some big ants, have a stinger with venom that they inject into their victim and make them squeal with pain. I used to get wasps attacking me growing up, and the sting was very intense. It was really hot and painful and would leave me crying and swollen. And a few times I got stung on the back of my neck and had an allergic reaction. And my whole face was swollen that my eyes were literally shut happened maybe two, three times. And if I had had five or more of those bites or stings, probably I could have died given my age. I was still very young, between six and ten. And scorpions would have been worse because they are more potent. Black mambas and cobras, which were very common where I grew up, don't even say. But if the stingers could be removed, that is, cut out, that would render useless the power of the sting and the fear for them. If the black mamba or the cobra is defanged, then it is made powerless. But I would still not have it for a pet as things stand until its name is changed into something. Maybe a blue mamba, that, that sounds like something less toxic, like black mamba, 
that black mouth, when it opens its mouth, it's just not it's just communicating death to everyone. <laughs> the point is, the venom is the picture of sin and its power. It is the sting of death. And Paul says the power of sin is in the law. They work together. The law is what brings about the condemnation and death because of sin. Sin is the venom. But where these have been taken away by sacrifice and fulfillment in Christ, then sin is made powerless. It has been neutralized. Christ is the anti-venom. So the body of sin has been crucified and it cannot condemn. Thus the victory chant and dance in 1 Corinthians 15, death, where is thy sting? Where is thy sting? Paul is obviously borrowing from these creatures and making a theological point. Death, where is thy sting? Because the death of Christ did away with the body of sin in the matter of its power to condemn us through the law. See the connection? Let us hear Paul's commentary on this in a different way, 2 Corinthians 5, 14 to 19. Second Corinthians 5, 14 to 19. For the love of Christ compels us because we judge thus, that if one died for all, then all died. So that is union and representation by Christ for all of the elect, that when Christ died, all the elect in him died with him, but this is not speaking to universal salvation. Verse 15. And he died for all, he died for, for, that is, in the place of, and for the benefit of the all who are numbered among the elect, that those who live should live no longer for themselves, that's ownership, but for him who died for them and rose again, they were bought. So Christ has become the new master, so we have the indicative imperative combined, but not separated as to be given just the imperatives without the indicatives. Verse 16, therefore, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh because the redeemed have been translated into the light of Christ, from darkness into the light of Christ. According to Colossians 1, 13 to 14, I'm going to have to read that. Well, I don't like to just quote verses without reading them. Many times people quote verses that don't really support what they're saying. Colossians 1, 13 to 14. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the son of his love in whom 
we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. So God did that, translated us from darkness into light by way of forgiveness of sins. But going back to 2 Corinthians 5, 16, even though we have known Christ according to the, to the flesh, yet now we know him thus no longer. The true believers who know Christ, not just as the son of Joseph and Mary, but as their redeemer and as their righteousness through faith. Verse 17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. All things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. So being in Christ is what makes you a new creation because God has formed you anew in him who has become our righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. All things, the old creation is Adam. It is sin, death, and condemnation. These have passed away through the death of Christ, and in that they have nothing on those that Christ redeemed. That is the passing away. Sin, death, and condemnation have no more claim on those that Christ redeemed. So that is the passing away and also that is the new creation for the redeemed. There is here the context of what Paul means by being new creatures, whether he is talking about your behavior or your standing before God in Christ. Verse 18 and 19, still in 2 Corinthians 5. Now all things are of God who has reconciled us. So this is the new creation. Reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. How did he reconcile the world to himself? Not imputing their trespasses to them and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. So your new creation is not in your changed life. It is in that God in Christ did not impute your sins to you and has instead reconciled you to himself. That's new. <laughs> That's the newness of life. That's the new creation. Now we'll go back to Romans 6. We're almost done. Romans 6 verse 7. For he who has died has been freed from sin. The person who has died has been set free from that which controlled them. They've died to bill payments, to paying taxes to Anglesem. They've died to abuse, 
You name the list is endless. And in this particular context, everyone was a slave to sin. And that means the implication is with no freedom and with no rights. And death was the way of escape because the slave master could not pursue one who was dead. They would leave him or her alone. So death became the way of escape to freedom. That's what Paul is arguing. So when Christ died, those who died with him also escaped the power of sin to condemn them. Their relationship to sin was cut off. When he died, not when they believed. In what way? Not that they do not sin anymore, but in that they are justified from all sin. To be justified from all sin is the same as saying having died to sin and being freed from sin. They are speaking to the same thing. So Paul was using the picture of slave master dynamics to illustrate his theological point in a way that people would and could relate to and understand. Verse 8. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Or with him. Now Paul continues his cascading line of thought and says our relationship and the benefit of being with Christ did not end at his death. He said we shall also live with him and that means there's continuity in this relationship. And that is the believer's hope. Not to die but to live forevermore with Christ. And this all believers should know, verse 9, knowing that, knowing that having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Christ dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death has no more power over him. Death has no more claim over him. It has no more dominion over him. Because he gave death what it needed. Momentarily, death had dominion over Christ for three days and three nights. But because of our sin, Christ Jesus submitted himself to death. 
But since sin was overcome by crucifixion, the redemption price, and death by the resurrection of Christ, it has no more dominion. Not on Christ. Christ is free. For the death that he died, verse 10, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. The death that Christ died, he died to sin once for all time. Once for all time. And to never be repeated. And that is not saying. He died for all people, for those who don't know how to read. That is not saying Jesus died for all people. It is saying he died once for all time, and what he did, he is not going to repeat. In the life that he lives, he lives to God, not to the power of dominion and condemnation of sin. Jesus lived that, experienced that for the three days and three nights. Jesus never lived to sin. Not for a single second of his existence. But Paul said what he said to prepare us for the reorientation of our minds as sinners in practice. And says verse 11, that's our last verse. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is one of the most important verses in the whole Bible if people understood what Paul was actually saying. And it has taken 11 verses to get to that theological point. And it is an incredible point that supports what we have said so far is what Paul was saying. Paul says, because of all these things that happened to Christ, his death and resurrection, the putting away of the body of sin on the cross, the crucifixion of the old man, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin. Reckon yourself as Christ is. <laughs> because what happened to Christ is what happened to you. By reason of union with him, by reason of election. Reckon yourself not as in Adam in spite of your experience of sin, do not reckon yourself 
as if you are in Adam. Reckon yourself as those in Christ because as he is, so are we in this world. It is a very powerful theological and gospel statement. The believers are sinners in practice because we stumble in many ways, but in the matter of the gospel, we are to reckon ourselves as having died to sin in the death of Christ. That's what the death of Christ should mean to us. That's what Christ did for us, and that is how God sees us. He caused us to die to our relationship to sin, especially in its causing death and condemnation. And believers, the redeemed, are to reckon themselves as alive to God, as Christ is alive to God. And what that is saying is, stop your constant, incessant introspection of your unrighteousness. There's no righteousness in constant introspection because then you become one who does not glory or who does not feel happy because of what Christ did. You become the center of attention, always bemoaning of your sin and this sin and that sin and that sin. Oh, I'm doing this and this sin is this. No, we need to bring that to an end. We need to hear the good news. Paul is bringing the good news. Believers are to reckon themselves as dead to sin and alive to God. As Christ is alive to God. And that means anyone who is in Adam is still dead. No matter how good they look. One cannot sever the relationship they have with Adam with sin, with condemnation, by anything that they do. You cannot do yourself out of Adam. There are no New Year's resolutions powerful enough to translate you out of Adam. There's nothing that you can do. God has to do it. So it is only in Christ that one is reckoned by God as having died to sin. And that to say, the death to sin is positional in Christ. It is a legal reality, not an experiential reality. And it is a very offensive reality that one sees a rab in the pews and God says, can you say hi to Sister Rab, the harlot? She died to sin. One sees David, and God says, yes, David died to sin, even though he murdered Uriah and took his wife. It is offensive to see that the repentant thief died to sin with Christ even though 
he dedicated all his life to stealing from people's homes. This day, he shall be with me in paradise. Die to sin. The woman caught in adultery died to sin. Jesus coming and saying, neither do I condemn thee. Neither do I condemn thee. It is election, beloved. It is union. It is identity with Christ. It is representation. It is free imputation of righteousness. The redeemed do not sin anymore only as God sees them in Christ. Only as God has put them in Christ. Only as God has redeemed them, freed and justified them from all sin. Question still is, shall we then sin the more that grace may abound? And God says, may it never be. And God be praised for his glorious gospel. There's a boy gospel and it is free. Amen. It means we are done. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for these many wonderful words that you've spoken to us through the Apostle Paul, Romans teaching that we are to reckon ourselves as those who died to sin because we were baptized into the death of Christ and we were raised with him and are now even seated with him in the heavenly places. We thank you for this wonderful message. I pray that you cause your people to hear what they're supposed to understand how they should relate to sin, how they relate to Christ and Adam, that though they may struggle with sin in their experience, you do not consider them as such, but those who are justified from it. We honor you, glorify you for all things. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, good people. God bless you. We had to take it slow today. Both of us tired. Very tired. But that worked well for the way that the message needed to be delivered. So God has wisdom in all things. Okay? All right. Thank you.